All right, y'all, are we about ready to get started? We got a little bit of a smaller group today, but I think maybe a few will be trickling in as we keep going here. Let's, uh, let's open up in prayer, and then we'll get started this morning. <clears throat> uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and to study your word. Lord, I pray that this time would be a time in which your spirit would work. I pray, Lord, that you would work through your word. Pray now, Lord, as we begin a new series, that you would bless this series as we look at your word, and pray that your word would be spoken in truth, and that you'd work through it, and that you'd accomplish in us what you want to do. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we finished our series last week on Colossians. You should remember that. And now, today, we're beginning a new series. This is part one of a brand new thing here. Come on in, guys. It's part one of a brand new series today. Now, as I was uh, um, speaking with Adam about our pastor, what, uh, what series we should do next? And we wanted to do a book of the Bible, we thought. And so, what book should we do? And he told me, <laughs> he told me, he said, you can do any book you want, but you can't do Genesis. That was his rule. You can't do Genesis. I'm like, well, why can't you do Genesis? What's wrong with Genesis? And he said, well, he said, because everyone always wants to do Genesis all the time. <laughs> the people have heard Genesis about ten times. So it was really funny because I thought, you can't do Genesis, so we need to pick something else. So then my mind began to work, and I thought, okay, let's do something very different than Genesis. Let's do something really different, probably something that just is not common at all. Let's pick a book of the Bible that is sort of out there. No, it's not Revelation. Don't worry. We're not doing that one. <laughs> but let's pick a different book that's sort of out there, very different than what we've been dealing with, something really fun, but also very deep, uh, not just theologically, but also practically, something that would be beneficial for us and help us understand a genre of Scripture. Come on in, guys. A genre of Scripture that we just are not that familiar with, generally speaking. Okay, so today... We're starting a series on the book of Zechariah. Book of Zechariah. How many of you have read the book of Zechariah? A few? Okay. It's, it's one of those more obscure books of the Old Testament. Zechariah is a minor prophet, and Zechariah is actually an apocalyptic prophecy book. So this is very, I mean, it's sort of like Revelation, I guess. Revelation is apocalyptic prophecy. And so is Zechariah. But Zechariah is in the Old Testament, written several hundred years before Revelation. And there is lots that we as Christians can learn from Zechariah. So that's our series that we're beginning on. And so what I'd like to do this morning is just give us an introduction to Zechariah. We're not actually going to look at the text this morning. We'll start in chapter 1 next week. But this week... All we're going to do is introduce ourselves to this book. We're going to just talk a little bit about the focus of Zechariah. We're going to talk about the historical background. And then we'll talk a little bit about how Zechariah breaks down in terms of an outline and understanding this book from sort of a bird's eye view. And then next week, we'll get into the text and work through each of its 14 chapters in the preceding weeks. Okay. So first off, just getting, us, getting our feet wet for Zechariah in this introductory session. There are a lot of books in Scripture, like Genesis, that tell us about great stories. 
right? Great historical events, major characters, right? If we read Genesis, this is one of the reasons why we're so familiar with Genesis. There's so many historical uh, events that happen that we've learned about since childhood if we've been in the church, right? We learn about God creating the heavens and the earth. We learn about the covenant of works established with Adam and Eve. We learn about the covenant of grace that God establishes after Adam and Eve broke the covenant of works. And we learn about how that covenant of grace is unfolded throughout Genesis through Adam and Abraham. And then later on, past Genesis, you get into to Moses and all those other people. Genesis is full of historical events and characters, and they, they, it tells us these great heroic stories of examples of people that we should be like. Or maybe even perhaps people we should not be like, as the case may be. But Zechariah is a little bit different. Whereas books like Genesis can sometimes like put people on pedestals and say, hey, look at this great man. Or, as the case may be, look at this bad example. Zechariah is a book for God's people who have broken the covenant with him. Zechariah is a book for a broken people. Zechariah is a book for people who have disobeyed God and are seeking repentance. That is what this book is all about. And we're going to see historically why that's the case in just a second. But this is a book for people who have failed God. All right? That's the mindset, that's the, the lens we need to view all of this text with as we get into it in these coming weeks. So, let's take a look at historical background here. This, I think, is super fun. Right? Sometimes when we read minor prophets, that is, the smaller prophets, Habakkuk, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Micah, all of these prophets that show up in the Scripture, these tiny little books that are sometimes only one chapter, if we read the Bible, you know, in a year, you know, do our read the Bible in a year plan or something, we can be tempted to just read through these books and get them all mixed up and get confused and not know what's going on. We don't know the historical background behind each of these guys. We don't know their ministries. We don't understand who they were and what their work was. I want to try to combat that here by giving us the historical background on Zechariah because it's fascinating. It's thoroughly fascinating, and I think it'll help us understand the Old Testament better as a whole, and Zechariah the prophet in particular. Okay, so let's uh, let's look at historical background for a second. When we look at the history of Zechariah, the the background to the book, I want to start just by thinking about the Exodus. We all remember the Exodus account, right? We have a book in Scripture named Exodus. It means coming out. And that's when God, through Moses, led the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. I'm sure you're familiar with this. The Red Sea. He gives them the Ten Commandments. The Mosaic Covenant is established. All these things. And then Joshua brings the people of Israel into the land of Canaan. And the tribes take their portions of land that they were given by God. And then the, we have the period of the judges. And then you have 1 Samuel, which Pastor Adam is preaching through on Sunday evenings. And if you're at those services, you'll remember that in 1 Samuel, we have the establishing of the Israelite kingdom. That is, Israel becomes a nation. And their first king is King Saul. Saul is not a good king. If you know anything about Saul, not a good king. But after Saul, David comes on the throne. And David is a great king. And after David... 
Solomon comes onto the throne, and Solomon is considered to be an even greater king. And under Solomon, Israelite, Israel as a, as a monarchy, as a kingdom, grows exponentially and becomes one of the most powerful dominions in the world at the time. It was filthy rich. Solomon had so much gold, so many armies, so many horses. He built the great temple to God. And we're told in, in the book of Kings that there were other kings from other nations and queens from other nations traveling to Israel, to Jerusalem, to meet Solomon and hear his great wisdom because he was the wisest man who ever lived, we're told in the scriptures. So Israel is like a, a pinnacle. It is the most successful nation, the most successful it has ever been. It's this fantastic, amazing kingdom. But then the consequences for David, King David's sin with Bathsheba and Solomon's sin with all of his wives and being led astray comes upon the nation. God brings judgment on Israel for the sins of David and Solomon. And what happens after Solomon dies is that the kingdom of Israel splits into two kingdoms. Now I'm going to try to move out of the way here so you can see this wonderful map that I drew here up on the board. What you're looking at here is Israel. This is the land of Palestine on the board here. This is the Mediterranean Sea over here. And you're looking right over here on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. This is the Sea of Galilee, which we well know from the Gospel accounts where Jesus calmed the storm. And this is the Dead Sea, or the Salt Sea, down here. Right, this whole area right here is about 200 miles north to south. So that's like the distance, a little bit less than the distance between here and New Orleans. Right, so it's not like a huge amount of land. Um, but that's what we're looking at here. Now, when Solomon died, Solomon passes away, uh, the kingdom of Israel, as judgment, God's judgment upon them, splits into two nations. I don't know how, if you've ever heard about this before, but Scripture describes this. They split into two nations, and I've outlined them in red and blue. The blue one is the what's called the northern kingdom of Israel. And that blue nation is governed by a guy named Jeroboam, after Solomon dies. He takes ten tribes of Israel and he says, all right, we're going to be our own sovereign nation. We are divorcing ourselves from the original. And this red nation down here is the kingdom of Judah. And that, guy, and that uh, nation is ruled by Rehoboam. So you've got this splitting of Israel. What once was a unified people of God is now two separate peoples. You could call this the first denominational split. <laughs> That's what happened here. You've got the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom of Israel on the top. All right, I'll just write those in here just so we can see that. Judah and Israel. Now, here's what happened. Okay? In the northern kingdom of Israel, guess what they don't have? You can actually see it on the map here. Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom. So Judah has control of Jerusalem. Israel does not. That's a problem if you're a Jewish people. Because what's in Jerusalem? The temple, exactly. The temple is in Jerusalem. So now the northern kingdom does not have access to the temple of Yahweh, Solomon's great temple. That's a religious issue. They don't have a church building now. They don't have the place to go and worship God every year. Because, of course, they split. Judah's not going to let those people in. Like, no, this is our temple. 
you guys have to do something else. And so what Jeroboam does, I think this is in 1 Kings 7, or 2 Kings 7, one of those. Um, King Jeroboam decides to invent his own religion for the northern kingdom. And he places two temples, one up here in the city of Dan. I've been to that temple, at least the ruins of it. One up here, and then he puts another one down here in the south. Two temples with golden calves in them. And Jeroboam says, all right, northern kingdom, here are your gods. Here's our new religion. We're going to worship these gods instead of Yahweh because we can't get to Jerusalem. So he essentially creates his own idolatrous religion. Now, how do you think God felt about this? You think he was a fan? Mm-hmm. Now, he generally doesn't like when we make up our own religions, does he? No, and that God then, 200 years after the split, brings judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel. The split between these two things happens in, I think it was 926 BC. Let's see if I got that right. Um, yes, split happens in 926. All right, that's right after the reign of Solomon. They split into two. Then, in 722, so you see, about 200 years later, God raises up a nation up here called Assyria. You ever heard of Assyria before? Not around today, but Assyria was the dominant world empire. Think of it as like the ancient Roman Empire. It is dominant, taking over, gobbling up land, destroying nations. And in 722, God raises up Assyria and sends them down here, and they conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. They take it all over. And now, this whole kingdom is destroyed, and the people begin to marry and assimilate with the Assyrians, these Gentiles. And that's where we get the Samaritans that are spoken of in the New Testament. You remember, they were the half- Jewish half-Gentile people that merged together. And then the original Jews down here were like, hey, you guys aren't real Jews. You've been mixing with Gentiles. You weren't supposed to do that. And so on. So that's where the, the Samaritans came from. Anyway, so you've got the northern kingdom. Immediately after the split, they become idolatrous. 200 years later, God destroys them. The southern kingdom, after the split down here in 926, remains faithful for much longer. They have some good kings. King Josiah, for example. You remember him? He was that young king that discovered the, uh, the copy of uh, the, the Pentateuch in the temple and then reinstituted all of the Mosaic law and everything and brought the nation back to faithfulness to God. So Judah is faithful for much longer, but they eventually waver and wander from God too. And it was 568, no, 587, sorry. I'm trying to memorize these dates. Got them in my notes. 587 is how long this kingdom lasts until it's taken over. And it was taken over by another kingdom that arose over here called Babylon. You ever heard of Babylon before? Yeah. I'm sure you do. If you read the Bible for two minutes, you're going to read about Babylon in some capacity. Babylon is the next world power after Assyria. Um, Babylon in this era, so you can see it's about 150 years after Assyria takes over the world. Babylon rises up. (coughs) Babylon comes over, takes over Assyria, and then comes down here and takes over the northern kingdom. And then Babylon gets into a war with Egypt down here. This is really, this gets really crazy now because Babylon needs to fight Egypt. And guess who's in the way? Judah's in the way. And furthermore, 
if you take a look at this, there was a trade route that ran like this called you know, the Via Maris, or the Way of the Sea. Maris is where we get our English word marine. The Way of the Sea was a trade route that ran from Egypt through Judah, up through northern Israel, up to Assyria, and down into Babylon. You can still see the Via Maris if you go to Israel today. Uh, it's still there. And you've got to remember, this was before the Roman Empire. There were not roads everywhere leading to places. You had to travel you know, through the prairies, up and down mountains. There were no roads. This was the only road that connected Egypt, a great world empire, with Babylon, the other major world empire. So Babylon wants Judah because Judah's not going to let them through this trade route. They don't want that. So Babylon comes down, they fight Egypt, they beat the Egyptians, and then they come and they take over Judah in 587. And this is where we start talking in biblical history about this thing called the Babylonian exile. Babylonian exile. You've heard of the Babylonian exile before? What happened was when Babylon came and took over the last of the Israelites down here, the last sovereign nation of Israel, they took all the Israelites captive as slaves, and they brought them all the way back to Babylon, into exile. And this is precisely what you read about in the book of Daniel. Remember Daniel? When Daniel, uh, when the, the book begins, Daniel and his friends are taken from Judah, and they're brought to Babylon and made into wise men for the king. That's what happened. That's when uh, King Nebuchadnezzar came, conquered Judah, and brought everyone back. Now, as you can imagine... That kind of a thing would bring the people of God into great turmoil. Into great turmoil. Because they had been, you know, suffering oppression from nations like the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Moabites and all these people throughout First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, throughout the history of the two kingdoms. They had been under oppression as judgment by God for their sin. But this was the first time ever that the Israelites had actually been exiled from the promised land. Remember the promised land? The land of Canaan was the land that God promised to give to Abraham's descendants. And God brought them there. They got the land. And now they lost it. They've been exiled to a foreign land way over here in the east, far away from the promised land. And now the kinds of things that the Israelites are asking is, God, where are you? What have you done? Why are we here? Their assurance of salvation is questioned. Their assurance of whether Yahweh even cares about them anymore is questioned. This is huge. This is a terrible position for them. In fact, we're not going to read it now because I don't have time, but Psalm 137 is a psalm written by the Jewish people when they were in Babylon, in exile. And the psalm is is a psalm crying out to God saying, Oh God, where are you? We're in a foreign land. The Babylonians are making fun of us. 
because we're not in the land of Canaan where we're supposed to be. God, where are you? That's, that's the, what the psalm is all about. It's a, a thoroughly emotional time for these people. They don't know what's going on. I'm just trying to help you understand the turmoil here. So the people of Israel are taken to Babylon. And they stay there from 587 to 538. And it's in 538 when God delivers them. Final kingdom we're going to talk about. I know there's a lot of names and places here. You don't have to remember all this, but I just want you to get a flavor of what was going on at the time that Zechariah was writing. In 538, God raised up another kingdom, the Medes and the Persians. You've probably heard of these before in studying world history at some point, maybe perhaps for some of you long ago, last you heard of these people. But the Medo-Persians, they were the next dominant world empire after Babylon. And the Medo-Persians came over, they conquered Babylon, they conquered Assyria, and they conquered the northern kingdom, and they conquered Judah, and they conquered Egypt. They took over the whole known world. And Cyrus the Great, the king of the Persians, who was responsible for now taking over the whole of the known world, was a very shrewd leader. And what he decided to do when he conquered all this territory was he decided to issue an edict. And that edict allowed the Jews to come back from Babylon, back to Judah. They were allowed to return to the land of Canaan. You can read about this edict in Ezra chapter 1. It's recorded for us there. Cyrus issues an edict and he lets them come back. This was a very shrewd move on, on uh, Cyrus's part. Because if you conquer a people, what's the best way to get them to submit to you? Make them happy. You give them what they want. As a ruler, if you give people what they want, then they give you what you want, which is power and allegiance. No one does that today in American politics, do they? No, that's how rulers are. Right? They know how to work the people. And that's what Cyrus was doing here. He wanted the Jews to submit to his authority and just be good citizens. So he said, hey, you can go back to your land. I'll give you what you want. And I don't, whether his motives were good or not, God used this in his providence to allow his people to come back to the land of Canaan. And so they come back in 538. And here's where we get now to Zechariah. You're probably thinking, wow, this is a lot of history. We're going all over the place. Where is this going? Well, I'll tell you. Zechariah is one of those Israelites who comes back from exile. Zechariah was born in Babylon. He never got to see the land of Canaan until after it was destroyed. And so he's born in Babylon. He grows up there. And then he returns with his people back to Judah. Ezra, I think it's the book of Ezra, tells us that about 42,000 Israelites returned to Judah. There were actually a number of Israelites that stayed in Persia and in Babylon. They were like, hey, we grew up here. We've been here for several generations. Okay, let's just stay. It's not so bad here. They'd never, you know, they'd never, oops, they'd never gone to, to the land of Canaan before. They, they were born and raised in Babylon, so they stayed. Those are the Jews you read about in Esther. They stayed in the Persian Empire. And that's the story of Esther where, you know, Haman has that plot to kill all the Jews that are in Persia. And, you know, you can read about that. But about 42,000 come back 
to the land of Judah, and when they come back. Now here's where we start really getting into uh, good background for Zechariah. When all of the Israelites come back after the exile, the land of Canaan is a very different place than it was when they left. And it's been, it's been a few generations here, number of decades. Many of the original Israelites who lived in Judah at the beginning of the exile died off. Many were born in Babylon, as I said before. They come back. It's a very different place. Not only because the people are different, and it's been many decades since they've been there, but it's also a different place because it's destroyed. When Nebuchadnezzar came in in 587 and destroyed Judah before he brought everyone into exile, he destroyed everything. He burned all the cities. He annihilated Jerusalem. He destroyed Solomon's great temple. Just destroyed it all. And all these Israelites, they hear from their parents, oh, it's going to be so great to go back to Canaan. It's a land of plenty. It's a land of of fertility. It's a land of great cities. They come back. Oh, no, none of that's there. It's all destroyed. They have to start from scratch. Rebuild everything. And not only do they have to start from scratch and rebuild everything, but as you can imagine, no one's been there for a few decades. And so there are a whole bunch of savage tribes that have moved into the area. And now they've got to fight off all of these savage tribes. And then they have to also rebuild all their cities and rebuild their walls and rebuild the temple. And so there's a whole collection of Old Testament books that's all about this. Ezra and Nehemiah, those books are all about rebuilding Israel, rebuilding the walls of the city, reestablishing the people's faith in the word of God, reestablishing that the covenant that God made with Abraham still stands. Book of Haggai, who was a contemporary of Zechariah, they worked together as prophets. Haggai uh, was all about rebuilding the temple. That's what he was dealing with the Israelites about, saying, hey, you guys got to rebuild the temple. God wants his temple back. And Zechariah, as we get into Zechariah here, he is not about rebuilding the physical Jerusalem or rebuilding the physical temple, as important as that was for those people. But Zechariah's concentration is rebuilding the faith of the people of God. Rebuilding their faith in God's promises and prophesying prophesying great things in Israel's future. Now, well, we'll talk about that in a second when we get to characteristics. That's, that's Zechariah's focus right there. That's Zechariah's focus. Rebuilding the faith of the people. All right. Now, just relatively quickly, I want to talk a little bit about characteristics of Zechariah. So we've got a historical background. We, we, we understand now the situation in which Zechariah is ministering in. A broken people. A people who were exiled because of their disobedience to God and have now been granted grace and have been brought back to the land. They're questioning their assurance. They're questioning who they are. And Zechariah is going to reestablish them as the people of God. And he's going to make prophecies about the future. And we're going to look at those prophecies as we go along. Now, because, because Zechariah is so filled with prophecies, because Zechariah is so filled with prophecies, it's, it's very much a book that's similar to Revelation in terms of how it works. You know, if you read Revelation, 
you read all these crazy things going on in there, don't you? You read about a dragon coming out of the sea. Well, that's pretty weird. Now, we know it's metaphorical. We know it's symbolic, right? But it's still weird. You're reading about a dragon coming out of the sea. You're reading about grasshoppers flying around. Giant grasshoppers flying around. Armor-plated grasshoppers flying around. It's weird. And I'm sure you are familiar with some of the symbolism in Revelation. Obviously, we don't take it literally. We're not saying a dragon's literally going to come out of the sea or something. But that is the kind of thing that you find there. Those are the kind of things you find in Zechariah. Visions. Very fantastic imagery. There are prophecies that we'll see relatively quickly in chapter 1 in Zechariah of red and white and brown and black horses flying around the skies of Israel. And then there's a woman in a basket doing something. And then there's a priest with dirty robes that he sees. And it's just like, what, what is going on? This fantastic imagery going on. And all of that requires us to have very keen interpretive eyes to look at these prophecies and say, okay, what's, what's going on here? Prophecy has always been something that's very, I don't know what the right word is, very difficult to work with. You know, Revelation has always been one of those books that's really puzzled me. And not just me. <laughs> it's puzzled a lot of people. It probably puzzles a lot of you. John Calvin himself famously said that he, he didn't write a commentary on Revelation because he just plain didn't understand it. And I don't blame him. It's very difficult to, to deal with prophecy. Right? But that's what we're dealing with in Zechariah. It's apocalyptic literature. It's, it's apocalyptic and poetical. Now, there's, there's some different ways you can interpret prophecy. There's the, a certain group of Christians called dispensationalists. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of dispensationalists before. Dispensationalists approach prophecy as literally as they possibly can. So if they read about you know, armor-plated grasshoppers in Revelation, they're going to try to figure out what John is describing in that book. And they're going to say, okay, armor-plated grasshoppers. Hmm, let me think here. That, that could, oh, if they're big, that, that could be helicopters. Helicopters look like armor-plated grasshoppers. Okay, so John's describing helicopters because he didn't know what they were, so he called them armor-plated grasshoppers. You see, that's, that's a very literal kind of interpretation for prophecy. There's another way that you can interpret prophecy, and this is the way that the New Testament interprets prophecy. The New Testament interprets prophecy like this. It looks at Old Testament prophecy that uses Israelite language and interprets that language in terms of New Testament Christian blessings. Let me say that again in a slightly different way. In our book, Zechariah, that we're going to be looking at, Zechariah depicts present Christian blessings in Old Testament language. So to give you an example of this, as, uh, Zechariah, in this book, when we get to chapters 7, 8, and 9, he's going to be prophesying that the land of the Israelites is going to be fertile, it's going to be uh, full of fruit. There's going to be a huge harvest. There will be perfect peace in the land. A righteous king is going to come riding in on a donkey and will bring shalom, peace, perfect peace to all the nations. 
Now think about those prophecies. If you interpret those literally, what you have to do is you have to say, okay, well, Israelite, Israel has to be a nation that has a king who's going to come riding in on a donkey and he's going to establish world peace. That's a pretty hard interpretation to take in light of especially where the Middle East is today. But if you interpret these prophecies like the New Testament does, and you understand that the prophecy about a rich harvest and peace in the land is not talking about literal peace in the land or a literal harvest of fruit, but those are spiritual prophecies about realities that Christians experience now in the New Testament. Because is it true that we have a righteous king who has come riding in on a donkey and has brought peace to the nations? Absolutely. Not literalistically. Nations are at war. But he has brought peace spiritually. He's brought us peace with God. And so we're going to look at these prophecies and we're going to take a look at what Zechariah is saying and how we ought to understand it. It's, it's going to be really fun. It's going to be really fun. I'm, I'm excited to look at God's word here. So that's the genre of Zechariah. It's apocalyptic prophecy. And we're going to learn how to deal with that. It's, it's going to be really good. Uh, secondly, what we should notice also is Zechariah is the most quoted minor prophet in the New Testament. He's the most quoted minor prophet in the New Testament. That's a big deal. That's awesome. So as we study Zechariah, we're actually going to get to know the New Testament better because the New Testament is drawing much on Zechariah's work here. And anytime Zechariah shows up in the New Testament, I'm going to bring it up for us and we're going to look at it. And we're going to see how the New Testament authors deal with Zechariah's prophecy. All right, final thing I want to do for our introduction here. I know this is a whirlwind of information, isn't it? There's a lot of stuff going on here. That's how introductions are. I'm introducing you to all of this stuff, and we will break it all down and deal with it in bite-sized pieces as we go through the text. But the last thing that I want to do here is just give you a brief outline of Zechariah so we can see where we're going in this book. How does it fall into its, uh, its layout? Now, when we went through Colossians, I had a three-point outline that we were working with. You remember in Colossians, it was first point, Paul's introduction and purpose for the letter. Second point, the person and work of Christ. And then third point, Christian living. That was how we broke Colossians down. I think that as we went through it, y'all could see how Paul was dealing with uh, his, his recipients in that way. Now, in Zechariah, I'd like to propose a similar outline, only this time we have five points. So it's a very Calvinist kind of outline. I'm just kidding. So we've got five points for Zechariah. Or not points, I guess, but five sections of Zechariah. All right, the first section is a call to repentance. It might be helpful for you if you have writing utensils to write this down, just so that you can sort of follow along with this as we go through this series. A call to repentance, and that's chapter 1, verses 1 through, I think it's 6. Yep, 6 call to repentance. The very first thing that Zechariah is going to do for his distraught, spiritually distressed people that he is writing to is he's going to call them to repent. Don't be like your fathers who were disobedient, who were idolatrous, who stayed away from Yahweh, who pushed him away. Don't be like that. Repent. Follow God. 
He's calling them, first of all, to repentance. And secondly, we have eight night visions. And these are the kind of the kind of apocalyptic prophecy kind of things that uh, Zechariah has. One of the visions is the, the different colored horses flying around in the sky. Now, if you're just reading through that quickly one morning, you'll be like, what on earth am I reading? This is weird. But if you stop, think carefully, and we'll work through it together, all of a sudden, things are going to start to come alive. We'll start to understand this a little better. So the night visions go from 1, verse 7, through 6, 15. I'm also working on memorizing this outline, so hopefully I won't have to look at it in the future. So those are the night visions, the apocalyptic prophecies. Third point in the outline is problems and restoration. Problems in the land and restoration. This is where we learn a great deal about the, the chaos of the land of Canaan right now with all the cities destroyed and the land being infertile, not producing a crop, famines everywhere, just a complete mess. And this is where we see the promises of restoration, the promises of the, of the fruit and the harvest and that sort of thing. And so we'll look at that. That's chapter 7 and 8. Fourth point is the first prophetic oracle. That's chapters 9 through 11. Another one is the, the fifth one here is the second prophetic oracle. And that's chapters 12 through 14. Zechariah is the longest and most quoted minor prophet in the New Testament. He's the longest minor prophet and the most quoted in the New Testament. So 14 chapters, that's a significant minor prophet. These prophetic oracles have to do directly with prophecy. Prophesying about God returning to his people, prophesying about that king of righteousness riding in on a donkey who is going to bring peace to the nations. Of course, that's Jesus. All right, so this is, this is the general structure of Zechariah, and we're going to be working through, I'll be putting this up on the board many times in the coming weeks to remind us of where we are and where we're going. I'm excited for this series, all right? I've never taught on an apocalyptic prophecy book. Generally, we Presbyterians tend to stay away from those, right? Because we have trouble with them. But that's why it's good for us to deal with them, right? It's good for us to get out of our comfort zone and work with these kind of texts. Because guess what? This is also the Word of God, just like Galatians is the Word of God, just like Romans is the Word of God, and just like Colossians is the Word of God. We need this just as much as all of God's Word. So we're going to deal with it as God has set it forth in His Word. All right. That's all I've got for you. Let's pray, and next week we'll get into chapter 1, verse 1 of the prophet Zechariah. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is not the same. We thank you that the genres aren't even the same. We may love epistles, or we may love historical narrative, or we may love psalms. But Lord, help us not to neglect apocalyptic prophecy. It's your word. And Lord, we pray that you'd give us wisdom as we deal with this word. 
Pray that you would help us understand it. Pray that you would open our eyes to what it is that you have to tell us and what your spirit inspired the prophet Zechariah to write here. And Lord, most of all, we pray that you would draw us to Jesus Christ, that we would see your son in this book, and that we would, we would rejoice and revel in the gospel that we see so clearly presented here. Pray, Lord, that you'd bless our time together in these coming weeks and prepare us now to hear the preaching of your word from Pastor Adam and to worship you. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.